on us. So, so let's have one silent session. We'll go directly into it, so please find a comfortable position and choose whatever method of mindfulness or, frankly, other methods you might choose that you find most beneficial. So let's continue looking ahead uh, so that we have kind of this increasingly this panoramic vision of how the mind evolves, and specifically one's attention, but within the broader context of one's mind, evolves along this path of shamatha. So yesterday we looked at stage five, which is this tamed attention. Today we go to six, which is pacified attention. Pacified attention. So what is achieved here on this stage is that one no longer experiences any resistance to training in the attention. Now earlier it was one takes satisfaction in stage five, but now that resistance, remember there was this kind of ambivalence, taking satisfaction and yet there was some resistance. Now the resistance is gone. One is going deeper, and so there's, there's one of the major shifts. Once again, this, is, this um, stage six is achieved by the power of introspection. So it's not, not only that you're utilizing it, but you're refining it. It's getting sharper and sharper, clearer and clearer. But then what problems persist? And when I first learned about these, then it suddenly, be, well, it just became all the more evident that this is not some kind of nice theoretical framework that some very smart person dreamed up, that if one were to train the attention, maybe it, maybe it would turn out like this. Because this, if one tried to do this logically, this next stage would, or this point, would actually make no sense at all. You'd say, oh, you must have gotten this one wrong, because this is silly. What problems persist? Well, let's just go back and, and note what were the problems persist in stage five, and they were um, some resistance to samadhi. That sounds pretty tame. And now you've overcome that resistance. So it now looks like smooth sailing, right? Smooth sailing should be what the doctor ordered. But the problems that persist are desire, for example, desires coming up, depression, lethargy, and drowsiness. They say, wait a minute, that sounds like stage, stage one. That's kind of like, wait a minute, what happened? The bottom fell out of this. Uh, what on earth? What's going on? And what's going on is the practice is going very well. Uh, and it doesn't, and this, this is not specific to settling the mind. This is for any type of shamatha. By the time you're here, so more, let's say, roughly two-thirds of the way through the course uh, on this nine-stage path, um, you're dredging very deep. You're dredging very deeply into your psyche. And you're having these times of very deep stillness, real kind of penetration. And many of you are familiar with this analogy I've given quite a few times by now, maybe not here, that as you proceed along this path of shamatha, it's like taking a jagged rock. Do you remember the analogy? A jagged rock that has a string wrapped around it. And you go down to a swamp, like in the lower regions of the Mississippi River, where the, it's the river, the mile-wide river, has been uh, in the, 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 the swamps off to the side, where the water is just kind of built up. And they pick up a lot of the stuff, all kinds of stuff that's been flowing down river for years or even decades or longer. And so this swamp there in the, in the kind of these lower reaches these, where the water, water moves very slowly is just filled with all kinds of yuck, you know, rotting vegetation, maybe a corpse here or two, silt of all kinds. And so if you drop your rock with a string on it down through that water, well, it's a jagged rock, and of course it's spinning around as the, as the, as the, as the uh, string unravels, then it will be turning, 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 and as it goes down deeper and deeper and deeper to layers and layers of sedimentation in this rather still swampy water, then, of course, it's going to stir up 
layer and layer, deeper, deeper layers of older and older sedimentation, rotten vegetation, corpses, and so forth and so on. And all of that stuff is going to be, not all, but a good sampling of it is going to float to the surface. So what's down there comes up, right? And so that's what you're doing. You're dropping the stone of your awareness. And as it's turning around, spinning around, coming into the deep, deeper, deeper layers of your psyche, what nowadays we call your subconscious, it's stirring up things that normally are just poking their heads up once and again or being heavily mitigated by just all our fixation, our absorption in the outside world. So we hardly even know. We just know we're grumpy here or whatever. But now it's coming up as you're just really bringing your mind in and you're opening the Pandora's box and some of the really weird stuff is coming up. So that was a short, that was a short list. Desires, craving, lust, and so forth. Very much, very much including sexual lust, which you might thought you had very much in kind of control, very manageable, and now it's like a you know, raging lion coming out. Depression, you didn't, probably didn't think you were depressed at all. Well, now get a good taste of depression, lethargy, drowsiness. That's the short list. Uh, so let's, go to, let's just kind of look at the long list. Because that's just a tiny sampling. And where I'm going now, of course, is... Now, where do you go? Oh, yeah, there it is. To the Vajra essence. Now, this is, uh, this is right there in the chapter one, so it's actually, this is, uh, this is included in, what's it called? Stilling the Mind, the book that I did, which covers just the shamatha section of the Vajra essence with an oral commentary. It's included in that book, so if you wanted to see background. But this is taken from the Vajra essence uh, immediately following his discussion of the ever-so-simple practice of settling the mind in its natural state. So these, he's going to call them signs of progress, are especially evident when you kind of have this ringside seat observing the ring of your mind, the circus of your mind, uh, because that is, of course, the focus of mindfulness. And so all the stuff that's being dredged up, it's kind of like in your face, in your face. You know? It's going to come up no matter what. But this is one, this is one practice where whatever's coming up, you're just facing it face to face, and so you get a, a very clear vision. In terms of know thyself, you're getting a great big dose of know thyself when you get to stage six. Now, these signs of progress occur sporadically throughout the nine stages, especially at the first six, um, but they really kind of come to a head for many people in stage six, and for the very simple reason that the practice is really working. You're really making headway. You're dredging deep. You're doing what needs to be done. And that's what you need to go through in order to tap into, finally, that's that equanimity, that equipoise, that luminosity, bliss, and non-conceptuality of your substrate consciousness. So here's what Padmasambhava says in the Vajra Essence, immediately following the instructions on settling the mind, or what he calls taking appearances and awareness as the path. Simply a different name for exactly the same practice. So here's what it says, and I read, I quote, In general, these are some of the signs of progress for individuals who are taking appearances and awareness as the path. So there's a whole bunch of them here. So, you may have the impression that all your thoughts are wreaking havoc in your body, speech, and mind like boulders rolling down a steep mountain, crushing and destroying everything in their path. So that's a sign of progress. Some of you have been calling those bad days. And... Padmasambhava says, oh, I'm sorry, it's not a bad day, that's a good day. Because if you're just practicing and just going, oh, what a day for a daydream, I'm really enjoying this practice, what time is dinner, because it's going to be yummy too. 
And if that's what your days are like, then, then Padmasambhav is saying, oh man, your practice sucks. You know? No, no, you, I thought it was going really well. Yeah, hedonically, maybe great, but in terms of developing shamatha, you're just treading water. Okay? So this is where you're not treading water. You're, deep, deep, you're, you're dredging up some of the deep doo-doo of your mind. Here's another sign of progress. You may experience a sharp pain in your heart as a result of all your thoughts, as if you had been pierced with the tip of a weapon. So something going on there in the heart chakra. On the other hand, it's not all bad. It's, just, it's, it's dredging up all kinds of stuff. And then the psyche, the psyche, the subconscious, is not just a teeming snake pit of awful things. There's all kinds of things down there. Some of them are very cool. Some of them are just weird and exotic, bizarre. And some are pretty creepy. So here's one. You may experience the ecstatic, blissful sense that mental stillness is pleasurable, but movement is p painful. So then finding this real strong longing, this grasping, this craving. Oh, it's so sweet when the mind is still. I love it. But then all those thoughts come rumbling in again. Oh, I can't stand that. That was a bad session. So a lot of craving can arise. Internal. Here's another interesting one. The perception of all phenomena. This is especially in between sessions, but it could happen during sessions as well. The perception of all phenomena as brilliant colored particles. You come out of sessions and you look out and the whole world appears like a Seurat painting, the French, French Impressionist. Everything just this, called pointillus, is that how you pronounce it? But just everything just dots sparkling, like you've just dropped some psychedelic substance, perhaps. I wouldn't know what that's like particularly, but maybe. Uh, but you start having some really kind of psychedelic, gro very groovy experiences in between sessions. Uh, heightened luminosity, and then this kind of everything being like points. That's not bad. On the other hand, the next one, you may experience intolerable pain throughout your body from the tips of the hair on your head down to the tips of your toenails. So there's just pain racking your body. And you may, of course, immediately you know, phone the doctor, say, doctor, something's... My body is tortured. What's happening? What's happening? And if it's truly a nyam, a meditative experience, uh, then you can go for the checkup. You know, why not? If you're consider, concerned, maybe it's a medical problem. Check it out. But if it's a nyam, if it's a sign of progress of doing this practice, the doctor can check you out and say, I see nothing wrong at all. I'm sorry you're in pain. I believe you, but um, nothing's wrong with you medically. And so, sorry. And then you know, aha, this is not a medical issue. This is one of the nyam. This is what's being stirred up, and it sometimes manifests somatically. as just pain. And then we continue. You may have the sense that even food and drink are harmful as a result of being tormented by a variety of the 404 types of identifiable complex disorders of wind, bile, and phlegm, and so on. In other words, you just may feel rotten, and even the little relief you got earlier from having a nice meal, something nice to drink, even that seems toxic. Everything seems toxic. Your body, everything you're taking in, you just feel overall rotten. And you think, wow, this is a sign of progress. I wish I could progress a little bit more slowly. You may have an inexplicable, so it's not only somatic, but it can manifest, it can and does, manifest somatically. But again, it's not a medical condition. You get it checked out, you say, no, what, what to say? Uh, but it's also psych you can have some psychological, very interesting stuff coming up. For example, an inexplicable sense of paranoia about meeting other people, visiting their homes, or being in town. 
just, just that. It's pretty self-explanatory. And there's no reality basis for it. You're looking around. It's like looking at the Thai staff and thinking they're plotting a revolution. You know? uh, what are they up to? Nobody's that nice. I know. They're up to something. When are they going to strike? You know? uh, it's just kind of crazy thoughts. You say, well, where's it coming from? Not from outside. It's coming from deep inside, repressed fears and so forth. You may have compulsive hope in medical treatment, divinations, and astrology. So when some of the, the in, in our family, when the bananas hit the fan, when things really get stirred up, and you're thinking, there's got to be some really, I, I, I need some help here. The doctor in the medical establishment can't find anything wrong. Okay, how about a, somebody, somebody do a divination for me. Do some magic. Do, how about some astrology? It must be in, my, in the stars. Or maybe there's some kind of, you know, Fresh medical treatment, something you know, that's non-mainstream medicine. I'm sure there's some help out there somewhere. And you start looking all over the place. Who can help? Nobody can help. You may experience such un unbearable misery that you think your heart will burst. It's one more sign of progress. But the thing is, you're looking around, what are you miserable about? And you can't find anything. Or maybe you just kind of pick up some memory, but it didn't disturb you previously, and now it's just driving you crazy. But just this kind of generally kind of objectless misery, what I like to call genuine unhappiness. Remember? Genuine happiness, kind of sense of well-being that stems from within, without reliance upon some pleasant catalyst or stimulus. Well, what I've called genuine unhappiness, I find it enormously meaningful myself. Genuine unhappiness or genuine misery is where you look around and there's just nothing whatsoever to be miserable about. You know, like us here, really, frankly, what's to be miserable about, right? And yet here we are in this little utopia, and then having misery coming up, just engulfing us, like a tsunami of, of depression and sadness and grief. And you say, what on earth going on here? There's just nothing in the world that warrants this type of sadness. Where is it coming from? And, well, it's coming from your mind. Uh, it's not stimulus-driven. It's something authentic. You might want to take a good look at it, because this is coming from the depths of your own mind. You may have, some of you have already experienced this, insomnia at night or fitful sleep like that of someone who is critically ill. That's very, very common. And a lot of you experience some degree of insomnia already. For, and I'll give a brief commentary here. But, you know, normally when we're in our kind of normal mode out in the socially engaged world, uh, we're working hard. There's a lot of wear and tear and a lot of fatigue as we're hoping and fearing, desiring and having aversion and so forth, and then working, working and concentrating and so forth. And so we get good and exhausted at the day. And then we want maybe some television or some other kind of entertainment, something to kind of mm, relax a little bit in the evening, maybe you know, go out with some friends or whatever. And then we're really tired. You know, we've worn ourselves out uh, at the end of the day, and we, and we sleep. Just sheer fatigue. Here we are with 22 hours a day, with no demands on our time at all, just two hours and two hours, and out of that two hours, you already know that two, now it's more like two and a half. At uh, two and a half, yeah, right. Um, but even out of two and a half hours, close to an hour, we're just sitting here. You know? And so there's very little externally imposed fatigue, very little work we need to be doing. And yet here we are calming the mind, clarity coming up, a lot of energy is moving about in the body. So at the end of the day, a number of you have found difficult to fall, fall asleep. Not necessarily because the mind is so agitated, but often because the mind's so clear that it just won't slumber. It won't kind of calm down and get nice and dull and fall into sleepiness. 
And so I've mentioned to a number of you, and I'll say everybody, and also people listening to my podcast, that if any of this kind of issue comes up of insomnia, whether it's because you're here in retreat or people have insomnia out there uh, in the socially engaged world, um, it's a really good idea uh, to spend at least the last hour before what you think will be your bedtime when you'd like to fall asleep. Don't do anything to stimulate your mind. Okay? Nothing to stimulate. Don't, don't do any stimulating reading or conversation or, or let alone kind of vigorous exercise. The best thing would be just to go into the supine position or at least just sitting and mellow out. You know, go into the infirmary, calm the mind with mindfulness of breathing, get yourself grounded, relaxation, stability, releasing, releasing thoughts. So big emphasis on grounding the mind, on relaxation and stability, and really practicing shamatha still but with a strong emphasis on the ground, the foundation, the root, and the trunk of the tree. And don't really worry about the foliage, the clarity, vividness, luminosity. Uh, that's for tomorrow morning. You know? And in that way, the whole system will calm down. And when you've done that for an hour or so, then you can get into bed, brush your teeth, whatever, get into bed, go into the supine position, go into the shavasana, the corpse position, and then continue practicing. The same thing. Everything down to the earth element, the breathing, releasing thought with every out-breath, until you do feel some drowsiness come in. And at this point, since you, know, you need your sleep, then when the drowsy comes in, you just kind of see you've lost the edge, that you practice, yeah, just that, dullness has come in. Then, mentally, kind of snap your fingers, say, okay, my shamatha practice is finished. Maybe that was five minutes, maybe it's a half an hour, in bed, under the covers. But as soon as you see starting getting a bit dull, drowsy, spaced out, then good, finish my shamatha for the day. And then roll over, shift your position, and then fall asleep. But, so insomnia, very common, very common. And it just beca comes because of a, a lack of balance induced by whatever, having an awful lot of work to do or heavy stimulation or anxiety or fear or anger, all kinds of things can create uns uh, insomnia psychologically and in terms of behavior. But the whole issue here is to calm the whole system down, to settle, to, to go, again, restore greater relaxation. I would say this, that there is no such thing there's too much clarity. It's impossible to have too much clarity, brightness, luminosity, vigilance, wakefulness of attention. There's no, there's no upper limit. Otherwise, the Buddha would be all sick. You know, they'd be, they'd be you know, disabled because their minds are so bright. Well, they're not. So, but is it possible for us to have... Are, are, are there occasions in which we feel it's kind of like, mm, how do you say, difficult, challenging, to have so much brightness in the mind? And the answer is yes, but it's not because of the brightness. It's because we don't have the foundation not enough, so we're talking about the foliage there, the branches reaching to the sun. And what we've not balanced out is we don't have a strong enough foundation in relaxation, the root system, and a strong trunk of or stillness. If, you, if you're really deep, deep in a sense of relaxation, and the mind becomes very still, then that will support the vividness, no matter how much it is. But it all has to be uh, kind of uh, synergistic, and deeply, deeply rooted in relaxation and stillness. Then there's no problem with the, with the clarity, and you can also fall asleep just fine if you're deeply, deeply relaxed. And then you might start really exploring the possibility of falling asleep lucidly, where you, you kind of like going down one of those, there are some tunnels that I think go actually a full mile down under the Earth's surface. So these very, very deep kind of mining operations and so forth, there's some natural caves. And so imagine going down into one of these caves. It just goes way, way deep. But as you're going down, you're holding, holding a, a, a candle. You know, and you go down and down and down and down. But, he, but it's, 
lit all the way down. So just keep the light on as you go down the tunnel of sleep. You know, and see if you can go right into stage four non-REM sleep, dreamless sleep, and keep the light on all the way. Okay. Well, that can be, you can do that. It's possible. I've done it. Other people have done it. Um, it's not that uncommon. It's, I'm so, no high realization there. Um, but it comes only when you're really deeply relaxed. So relaxed, the body falls asleep and your mind falls asleep. But your awareness doesn't get shrouded, overcome by dullness. And then you can be hanging out in the substrate. Said, oh, it's not the same as achieving shamatha because you have just your ordinary sense of clarity. Whatever clarity you had when you fall asleep, that's what you get when you enter into dreamless sleep. And if you don't yet have, yet have the clarity of stage nine of shamatha, or having, actually having achieved shamatha, and that's a whole gradual process of overcoming coarse, medium, and subtle laxity. Well, you've not done that, right? You may still be at coarse or medium laxity, or maybe even dullness for that matter. So you have just your ordinary level of clarity, but you've brought that little candle of yours. You've brought that ordinary sense of clarity where usually there's none at all into dreamless sleep. And so you are now witnessing the substrate, not with the full illumination, that will come when you witness the substrate having achieved shamatha. Nevertheless, it's still that substrate. You're still seeing it, just not as clearly as you will later. Okay, let's keep on go going here. So, may experience insomnia at night or fitful sleep, like that you keep on waking up. Your sleep is so light that you keep on waking up, maybe come out from a dream or just any old thing, and you keep on waking up again and again and again. That's because you're top-heavy. In terms of you've got a lot of clarity. You don't have enough relaxation and stillness. Quite clear. Okay. So, but then here's another one. You may experience grief and disorientation when you wake up. Like a camel that has lost her beloved calf. And I don't know. Anybody remember the name of the movie? It was about camels in Mongolia. Anybody see that? The Weeping Camel. Yeah, Delightful movie. The Weeping Camel, well, The Weeping Camel is no exaggeration. That's not a cartoon or some kind of Hollywood phony bone or any. If you take the calf away from a mother camel, right, like she has to admit you, you, you want to put some burden on her and go on a trip, she has to leave the calf behind, she cries. I mean, they're miserable. They're overcome with grief. Enormous attachment for the, by, the, by the mother camel for her baby. And so this is nomad country. They know about camels. And so you'll experience that, like, like a mother camel has lost her calf. So grief, disorientation, just overwhelmed, crying probably. And somebody comes in, oh, what happened? What happened? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and then your friend can say, oh, a sign of progress. Yes, it's a sign of progress. <laughs> I hope it will pass soon. <laughs> you may have the conviction that there is some decisive understanding or knowledge you must have and then yearn for it, like a thirsty person longing for water. So as your mind's settling there, suddenly this enormous curiosity starts coming up. Quantum cosmology. That's what I should be studying now. <laughs> Dzogchen. Or I've heard the Kabbalah is really deep. I, should, I probably should study the Kabbalah. Or Kabir. The Sufi, the great Sufi saying, neuroscience, that's what I need to know. How can I progress without knowing what's happening in my brain? I should probably start studying... Swahili sounds like a really interesting language. I'd like, maybe that would be really cool. Maybe I'll do a little Swahili on the side. Anything, anything to get me out of here. 
you may experience the emergence one after another of all kinds of thoughts stemming from the mental afflictions of the five poisons. Remember what they are? Craving, hostility, delusion, and then add on envy and pride. So that you must pursue them as painful as that may be. Say, wow, wait a minute, this is stage six. This sounds like a really cruddy stage one session. But all these nasty thoughts, craving, envious, those so forth, and they're coming up, and they're all, they're, they're all abductors, they're all kidnappers. And they catch you, and you can't help it. You keep on following after them, as painful as it may be, totally unpleasant. And yet they keep on captivating. You say, man, this is a sign of progress. You may experience very speech impediments and respiratory ailments. Okay? And again, if it's a medical condition, medical condition, treat it medically. But then if the doctor says, I know, I know you're stuttering or you whatever, uh, you have, you're, you're having difficulty breathing, whatever, but I just don't see, I can't give you anything. I, I don't see anything wrong. I, I ran all the blood tests. I read all this. Good, it's a nyam. All kinds of experiences can, can occur, Padmasambhava continues, because all thoughts which are expressions of the mind and all appearances <coughs> of joys and sorrows are experienced as such. That is, you're, you're taking appearances and awareness as the path. You're recognizing each one for it is. And for this reason, they are called experiences. These are nyam. These are the meditative experiences. And nyam, once again, is a transient, anomalous, transient, psychosomatic, either psycho or somatic or both experience that is catalyzed by authentic meditation. So it's anomalous, it's weird, it's out of the ordinary, it's transient, they do pass. It can be somatically, like energy and this pain and all that kind of stuff, or it can be psychological, like the, par like the paranoia or seeing everything like dots of light. Um, and it's catalyzed because you're dredging your psyche, coming to this deeper, deeper state of stillness, moving through your psyche all the way through it from the top to the, top to the bottom, the bottom being the substrate consciousness. And yam will be catalyzed, and there's no way around it. And there, there's such an array of them, they cannot be articulated. That there's just tremendous, tremendous array. There, there, there's no telling what's coming up next. You know, they're really unpredictable. Yet all experiences of joys and sorrows are simultaneously forgotten and vanish. They seem to come out of nowhere, like on Monday and Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, it's kind of like, whoa, it's like a, like, a, like a hurricane swept through, and then afterwards, everything seems fine. So, oh, yesterday, I was feeling so much grief or paranoia, or there was so much pain in the body, and today, it's kind of like gone. How weird. What did I do? What? Wow, that was strange. Just gone. Those are nyam. A medical condition, then you treat it with, you know, go to a doctor, get treated medically. Uh, it's not a nyam. So these are different, and you need to know which is which. The next one's quite cute. You may experience the conviction that there's some special meaning in every external sound that you hear and form that you see, and thinking, that must be a sign or omen for me. And then compulsively speculate about the chirping of birds and everything else you see and feel. After all, Alan Wallace said that I'm the center of my universe. <laughs> that must mean everything's speaking to me. Come, come. Everything has a symbolic, mystical synchronicity. The bird chirped and the cricket went jumped. What's the meaning of that? I'm sure there's a message there someplace. In other words, you become wildly superstitious. Oh, yeah. 
You may have the sensation of external sounds and voices of humans, dogs, birds, and so on, all piercing your heart like thorns. This is where you become hypersensitive. Again, inadequate relaxation and stillness. And so everything is kind of sharply, like, like ice picks, impinging upon your awareness, being very startling, uh, very upsetting. You may experience unbearable anger due to the paranoia of thinking that everyone else is gossiping about you and putting you down. That's pretty self-explanatory, especially the Thai staff. You know, when you see them talking amongst them, you know they're talking about you. You're just like, whoa, these Westerners, especially that one. Oh, yeah. You may experience negative reactions when you hear and others see, when you hear and see others joking around and laughing, thinking they're making fun of you. And then you may retaliate verbally. So you go over to the pool and see people just kind of laughing around there, and then marching up to them, "I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm one of the meditators over in the mind center, and you have to stop doing this. You know, we're practicing Dharma. You." You're just making fun of us. I can't stand it. Because of your own experience of suffering, you may experience compulsive longing for others' happiness when you watch them. Oh, what a place for that. You know, here we are in this little concentration camp or mental rehabilitation center or whatever you want to call it. But over there, you know, in the divine, look at those people. Look how happy they are. In the swimming pool, look at people playing tennis. Not a care in the world. They've never heard of the reality of suffering, or Four Noble Truths, you know, all that kind of stuff. They're just enjoying life, developing their backhands, learning how to do different strokes, working out in the gym. They've got those great bodies. Man, the people, some of the bodies I see running around the track, whew, wow, they must be happy. Have a body like that, sleek, sharp, six-pack, the whole thing. Boy, they, they know how to be happy. We're just sitting here. What are we doing here again? Watching our breath? What in the hell is going on here? I think I found the wrong place. I should be over there. Let these people, you know, sit around watching their mind. Whatever. You may experience fear and terror about weapons and even your own friends because your mind is filled with a constant stream of anxieties. So, been there and done that. Everything around you may lead to all kinds of hopes and fears. So just an awful lot of grasping coming up. When you get into bed at night, you may experience premonitions of others who will come the next day. This is something, oh, we're running out of time. But a very interesting one, maybe we'll... It happens. I'll just leave it at that. It happens. It happens quite frequently that you develop a little bit of sporadic clairvoyance of things that are going to happen the next day. The yogis up in, that I lived with up above Dharamsala, not at all uncommon. But I'd like to finish this today, wrap it up. It's coming at the end of the week. Uh, you may experience uncontrollable fear, anger, obsessive attachment, and hatred when images arise. Seeing others' faces, forms, minds, and conversations, as well as demons and so forth, preventing you from falling asleep. So lots of hypnagogic imagery, really clear stuff, creepy stuff coming up. So you're really dredging the mind. You've gotten the idea. On the other hand, it's not all negative. You may experience weeping out of reverence and devotion to your gurus. Your faith and devotion in the three jewels, the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Your sense of renunciation and disillusionment with the cycle of existence and your heartfelt compassion for sentient beings. So it's, again, not all negative. You have these great surges, these great upheavals of all kinds of things coming up. You may have the feeling that gods or demons are actually carrying away your head, limbs, and vital organs, leaving behind only a vapor trail. 
or merely having the sensation of this happening or it occurring in a dream. And then afterwards, all your anguish vanishes and you experience a sense of ecstasy as if the sky had become free of clouds. In the midst of this, the four kinds of mindfulness and various pleasant and, and harsh sensations may occur. Four kinds of mindfulness. Now you remember those, right? These five tre treasures all interface with each other. Remember? Single-pointed mindfulness, manifest mindfulness, absence of mindfulness, self-illuminating mindfulness. So these are going to come up in the course of this as well, okay? Over time. And finally, in the end of it, just, just in time, you will experience the vanishing of all your suffering and the saturation of your mind with radiant clarity and ecstasy like pristine space. So that should be on, the, if, you know, if shamatha came in a bottle, if you could, you know, get it in a bottle, that should be what's on the label, you know? Um, shamatha Bliss, brand name, I just trademarked that. Shamatha Bliss. And then the little line says, uh, take this and you'll experience the vanishing of all suffering and the saturation of your mind with radiant clarity and ecstasy like pristine bliss. You know, three tablets a day. And then in very fine letters at the, at the bottom that you really need, you can also make the magnifying glass to read. And I conclude this, rough experiences may precede such radiant clarity. <laughs> the side effects, you know, minor side effects. But really so small, you can hardly see it at all. So those are some of the side effects. Enjoy your day. See you this afternoon at 4.30.